Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship this morning, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts as we continue in our series through the Acts of the Apostles this morning, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, is where we'll begin from Acts 4, 32 through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a season of hope. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of light and the winter of despair. Many of you recognize some of the introductory lines to Charles Dickens' great classic, A Tale of Two Cities, and in what is arguably the most famous introduction in all of English literary history, Dickens gives us a snapshot of 18th century Paris, 18th century London. But I hear those words this morning as an apt description for our text that is before us. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. Let's start with the best of days. Let's start with the season of light. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following, we read a a good day, a great snapshot in the early church. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field, verse 37, that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. It is a panoramic snapshot of the best of days of the early church here. It's a beautiful description of the early church. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and One soul, thousands of people from disparate places, thousands of people that hear the gospel. They have this unity around the gospel, saturated in the teaching of God's word. And it's a unity that propels them outward here. It is a gospel unity that leads them to voluntarily and willingly divide up their possessions to provide for those who were in the need. Notice with me the motivation of this grace here and the generosity. Notice with me how generous they were and what motivated that. Is it because Peter stood up and gave a 25-minute just sort of guilt-ridden speech? How can you have all this stuff where there are people in need? I mean, we don't get any of that. The motivation of their generosity is this beautiful description in verse 33. It's easy to miss it. Great grace was upon them all. Do you see that? Great grace was upon them all. I mean, it's easy for us to sing of God's amazing grace. 
The words of John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I found I once was blind, but now I see. And yes, it is true that God's amazing grace captures our heart while we're dead in our sins. It is true that God's amazing grace penetrates the hardness of our hearts and captures us while we're dead in our sins. And yes, it is his amazing grace that justifies us, but his grace does not stop at our justification. His grace propels us forward in our growth. It isn't as if God saves us and says, hey, figure it out on your own here. It is his grace that seals us in his salvation, but it is his grace that sustains us and sanctifies us, grows us. So grace is the sun and it is the water that that grows spiritual life in your life and in my life. It sprouts new possibilities. His grace does. His grace brings about new life for all of us. And so their generosity isn't for us to step, take a step back and say, whoa, look at how awesome they are. It's once again to say, wow, look how awesome God is. Because it is their generosity that is ultimately the work of God's grace in them and through them. The same thing is true for all of us that are here this morning. Verse 34 And this snapshot, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Luke is not describing this proto-communism in the first century here. But what he is describing is that these early apostles and the early church, they lived with open-handed generosity. They had open hands to everything that they had. If they saw needs, they met those needs. How did they meet those needs? Through the resources that God had entrusted to them. So no one went to sleep at night hungry because the early church saw that need and they met that need. No one was able to to not have to have uh, clothes on their back because the church saw that need and they met that need. And a multitude of other needs that aren't listed here in this text, we can imagine the early church seeing those needs and meeting those needs. This is the early church at a high point. This is what the early church looks like when they're full of the Holy Spirit and they're walking in step with the Spirit. Don't miss that that when the church is at its best, the church is always facing outward. When the church is walking in the spirit, it means that they're Christians who don't think of the church as a holy huddle, a holy club, but it is a a body of Christ that is outward focused, understanding that all that God gives us is a gift from him. And in the midst of this, we move from this panoramic shot of the early church to a close-up of of one person whose name is Joseph. I doubt you know him by his name, Joseph. The apostles give him a nickname, and that's how we remember him. He's one of my favorite characters in all the book of Acts. And we get this first little cameo of Barnabas, and that name given by the apostles meant a son of encouragement. I'll tell you this, I grew up with a lot of people, and we gave nicknames to him. I knew a lot of Bubba's. I knew a lot of buddies. I knew a lot of docs. I knew a lot of chiefs. I knew a lot of coach. I knew a lot of nicknames. But I tell you this, I I never knew someone that we gave a nickname that meant, hey, that is a son of encouragement right there. But that's how he lived his life. That the apostles said, hey, that's Barnabas again. You can imagine Barnabas showing up at church. And Barnabas is the kind of guy that just meets people with a hug, you can imagine. You can imagine Barnabas taking his arm and wrapping them around somebody, lifting people up. That's what we're going to see. It's just a snapshot here. We're going to come back to Barnabas. 
But he, he is a person that lifts people up. He's a person that we leave their presence and we say, man, I am encouraged by that guy. That guy's the son of encouragement. His name was Barnabas. Now, all we have with this little snapshot, this early cameo of the church and the early cameo of Barnabas is that Barnabas is exemplifying what the early church was doing as a whole. And so Barnabas does what everybody else is doing here. Barnabas sells a piece of his land. He gives the money to the apostles and they care for those that are in need. How they did that, we don't see here. It stops with us at this moment, but don't leave this passage. It's easy for us to say, wow, look how amazing the grace of God was working in them. The spirit of God was leading them here and they were leaving generous, leading generous lives. But what we have to hear as we listen to this passage is God's call still upon us, his spirit still on us, asking us, will we live lives of generosity? Will we live lives with closed fists to our possessions? We hold them, we own them, or will we be open-handed to what God has entrusted to us as we're stewards of that? Closed fist, open hands. I mean, yes, God blesses you with resources for your family and for your future. That is certainly biblical, no doubt. But that's not the whole story, is it? Yes, we're good stewards for the sake of our future and the good stewards for the sake of our family. But our resources are never intended to be huddled up in just the cul-de-sac of me, myself, and I. God gives us resources to be a catalyst, to be a blessing to those that we come in contact with. And the only way that we're able to do that is by living with open hands that lead us to live generous lives. Now, this early snapshot here isn't an invitation for all of us to have to go sell all that we own. It's not calling us then, nor is it calling us now to leave behind private, uh, private possessions and to live in a commune together. That's not what the early church was doing there all the time. They, they, they were able to uh, give their resources together to meet a need here. But God does call us to be generous. Very important here. And the greatest threat to Christ-centered generosity in your life and in my life is to forget what? It is to forget that all that we have is ultimately a gift. In each of our souls as followers of Christ, we've got to make a decision because there's two options that live simultaneously at a very deep part of our life as followers of Christ. We will see our resources as his that we're stewards of, or we will see his resources as our resources that we're owners of and originators of. And that temptation lurks in all of us. And when we are owners of resources and we're originators of resources, we will always see those resources as solely the result of our work ethic, solely the result of our intellect, solely the result of our inherent value. And you know, when we, when we live life long enough with this posture of ownership, this posture of originator, it always leads us inwardly focused. It always caves in on itself. This is always the destination. You know this. We all know this. We need to be reminded of this. In a, another of Charles Dickens' very famous books, we're introduced in A Christmas Carol to one of the most iconic characters in all of literary history by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge. 
And when Dickens introduces us to him, we get the heart of uh, that he, he goes through life as an owner and originator just through the words that Dickens picks for him. He was a, in his words, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous, hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. He's owned by his stuff. He's possessed by his possessions. But don't fool yourself. We all have a bit of Ebenezer that lurks in my heart. And I bet lurks in yours too. And generosity, it frees us from this bondage. And I just pray this morning as your pastor for my life in our life corporately, that we would actually have the courage to believe this. That we'd actually have the courage to believe that generosity is the path of blessing, that generosity is the path of flourishing here. And I, I pray that we would have the courage to not just believe this, but to live this out, because there's nothing about generosity that is hypothetical and theoretical. It always intersects to our bank account. It always intersects to our tax returns. It always intersects to the consultations we have with our accountants. That's the only way forward with this. We can't just think of it and hypothetically mull over it, 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 the rubber hits the road, doesn't it? And so we see this very remarkably with the early church. It was the best of times, but I did tell you that it was also the worst of times, didn't I? It was a season of light, but I also told you it was a season of darkness. Now, let's go to the worst of times. Acts chapter 5 in the ongoing saga of the early church begins in verse 1 with a but. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Notice these questions here, once again, reminding us that this was not a proto form of communism by the way that Peter's asking these questions here. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. And I'm not inventing this. He breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
And great fear, verse 11, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Hey, if we're going to vote for some of the most shocking stories in all of the book of Acts, this is going to be in the top five, guys, girls, church. This is top five material here. This is one of the more shocking stories in all of the Bible here, is it not? I don't know how many of you play games at your house, I don't, you know, before you go to bed at night instead of sort of going into an isolated room and everybody on their own phone and those kinds of things. I mean, do you play games sometimes together? I'm married into a family that loves to play games. I, I didn't really grow up playing a lot of games, but Danielle's family, they, they just have a lot of joy in playing games. So that meant that I sort of had to learn to, to play a lot of different games as I, became a part of the family. And one of the games that we played now for about 24, 25 years of, of life together is a, a game called Catchphrase. Many of you are probably familiar with this game. It's an easy game to play. It's not a game that requires three hours of your commitment, four hours. You can play for, you know, 20, 30 minutes and enjoy the time and go on with the rest of the night here. It's real simple here. You press this uh, button right here, a phrase comes up, and then that button gives you a timer. If you got six people, you can have groups of three, you can have groups of two, three teams, two teams, and then you're, you're sharing clues about the word that is before you, but you can't say the word starts with this letter. You can't say the word rhymes with this. So you've got to give good clues that don't, in the end, cancel out uh, your ability to, to tell them without giving them too much information. You have one, every round, you have one skip, one next of the official rules of catchphrase here, if you're wondering. You've got one push of this forward button that you're allowed. Now, with our kids, we started playing this game as early as they could read, which meant we had to make a decision whether or not we were going to bend the rules. Well, they have a budding vocabulary. They're building their vocabulary. And sometimes in the effort to speed the game along here, they would have a word and they did not know what that word meant or they didn't know how to uh, immediately recognize it in the heat of the game. And so we gave them unlimited skips. They could just go next, next, next and find the word and play the next word. Sometimes as your pastor, I wish I had unlimited skips of passages. I mean, really and truly, if I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, because we've got visitors here today. And I'm very sensitive to, I would never just, if I had one Sunday to preach at Dawson, say, hey, everybody turn to Acts chapter 5. Let me just share with you a really uplifting story from the Bible. I mean, you know me well enough. I've been your pastor for six and a half years. That's, that's not my default. But these kinds of stories are in the Bible for a reason. And, and we need to be careful within our own personal life, pressing next and moving past these stories too quickly. Because God gives us these stories for a reason. And these stories are to confront us. And the goal of the Bible is not to make us all comfortable. It is to encounter a holy God a God of grace, mercy, and love, yes, but also a God of wrath, justice, and just judgment, yes. And we go through our Christian life sometimes and we say wrath, skip, judgment, skip, justice, skip. I wanna play grace, I wanna play love, I wanna play mercy. 
And one of the reasons that I, as your pastor, am bound and tethered to the Word of God, and one of the ways that that comes out is by walking through books of the Bible, because if it was left to me just selecting passages, I would be your pastor for a long time and not get to this passage. But I'm tethered to a word that I am not asked to be the editor of. I am tethered to a word that God has not consulted me and said, David, how do you feel about standing before hundreds of people and talking about this? Now, it is important for us to be confronted out of our comfortability because when we're confronted with the word, it conforms us. Now, obviously, we have to understand this story and to understand the story, you've got to see it in the context that this is the tales of the head story of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. But these go in conjunction with each other. Do you see that? Do you see that Ananias and Sapphira, they're actually just a cruel parody of what the early church was doing at the end of Acts chapter 4? Just like the early believers, they were voluntarily selling their possessions and they placed the proceeds before the apostles' feet, the believers in Acts chapter 4, they're filled with the Spirit of God. And they're of one heart. But when you turn to Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, Ananias is filled not with the Spirit of God, but he is filled with, did you see that? With Satan. And he contrived this deed in his heart. Now, what did Ananias and Sapphira do so wrong to, to merit such a severe judgment of God in the early church? And that's a really good question. And we've got to, we, we've got to dive and probe into that. See, the problem was that in keeping with the character of Satan, Satan who is trying to get a foothold in the incubational growth of the early church, those early days of the church here, they're deceiving, they're lying, they're keeping back some of their proceeds, only bringing a part to the apostles. And, and they're deceiving the apostles, they're deceiving the early church. Why did they do this? They wanted to look really spiritual. They wanted to look really generous. They wanted to be praised. They wanted to be patted on the back. They wanted to have a plaque in their honor with their name on it here, all of those kinds of things. And Peter says, hey, I'm gonna call you for what it is. You're lying to God. Verse four, Acts chapter five. And before Ananias is able to utter a rebuttal, he drops stone dead. Now, some scholars speculate that maybe this is a heart attack after the shock of being exposed here. All you got to do is walk down to the next passage with Sapphira to know there's nothing accidental about this here, that this is the judgment of God and God is the cause of this punishment here. His body is being removed and buried. Peter's got three hours to think about what is he going to do when his wife, who is not even a known widow to herself at this time, when she shows up at church. And so Peter, you could imagine, prays through this. We see Peter uh, going to the side of comfort, going to the side of compassion, actually gives her a way out of this, right? He gives her an opt-out, gives her the opportunity to come clean by the way that he asked the question to tell the truth. And what does she do? She repeats the same lie that her husband three hours before had repeated. And what is the same fate? It is her death. 
And verse 11 that encapsulates this story is an understatement of understatements. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon those who heard of these things. Now, don't think fear in the terms of like a Halloween movie. Think of fear in terms of reverence, respect, and holy awe that comes over the church. Why? Because the impact that God wanted to have upon the early church, he has. Everybody understood that this is a warning that God takes sin seriously. And why in the world would he do this so severely? Well, again, this is such a fragile time in the history of the church. This is such a pivotal time in the history of the church. And if this deceit is unchallenged, who gets a foothold in the church? You know who does? You know who's attacking the church? It's not Ananias and Sapphira. You know who's attacking the church? It is Satan himself. So this is a battle against the enemy, Satan. And God is making a point. He's not stamping a pattern. And you've got to see the difference here. You'll misunderstand much of the Bible if you don't get this point. God is making a point at this moment in salvation history. He is not stamping a pattern for every incident that will follow that is like this. Sometimes in the Bible, we have stories that are descriptive of what happened and how God dealt with it but they're not prescriptive for how God always deals with every situation. And you know this as you read this story, you know this as you come to worship together, together this morning, because, well, frankly, none of us would be here. I would not be preaching before you if the seed always led to immediate death. None of us would be here, right? But before you say, whew, I feel better. Don't miss this. Your deceit and my deceit, it does lead to death. It does lead to our spiritual death. Our sin, it cuts us off from a holy God. And deceit is just one example, one example of what brought our Savior to the cross. The only way that we will not meet the same fate of Ananias and Sapphira for eternity is that we have our sin of deceit covered under the blood of Jesus. The same wrath, the same judgment, the same severeness that God had for sin of Ananias and Sapphira that was played out in this moment in time is the same way that God, a holy, perfect God, views all of our sin. But there is something that is peculiar about the sin of deceit. And there is something that is instructed for us to see how God handles deceit in this moment. Because why? Because we know just how destructive deceit is, not just for individuals, but also for communities. Church, you, you know this, right? Deceit is a wrecking ball. It is a wrecking ball that demolishes trust, it demolishes unity, and it does that in your workplace, it does that in your family, and it does that in the church. And we know this because we're all a part of this. And we suffer from this plight. 
Ananias and Sapphira, they have a spiritual deceit. They're putting their best spiritual foot forward, saying, look at me, look at us, look how super spiritual that we are, and we need to recover a word that really describes what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. And that word is hypocrisy. And that temptation, it lurks in all of us. Mark Twain, years ago, he said it this way, we're all like the moon. We've got a dark side. We don't want anyone to see. And this is relevant. This is so relevant, not just 2,000 years ago, but it's relevant today. I mean, just this last week, I was thinking about how deceit is so destructive in the body of Christ. It is a wrecking ball of trust and unity in the body of Christ, but it is also a wrecking ball to the witness of the church to a lost and unbelieving community. I mean, just this last week, I mean, even I, I Googled church scandal. You don't need to do this. I mean, you, you know what comes up because you see it on your Twitter feeds. You see it on your social media feeds. There's not a week that goes by. There's not a, a, a day that goes by from Australia to Arkansas big church, little church, and the, 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 the media sees this and the, the headlines, pastor, cover up, affair, pastor, cover up, abuse. I mean, you can find tons of articles on this, but it's not just church and scandal. I mean, you put any noun with scandal, universities and scandal, workplace and scandal, families and scandal. Politics and Scandal, there's a new show that's coming out in a few weeks, and it's just entitled The United States of Scandal. I mean, we know this. We see this. And that cover-up, the cover-up of months, the cover-up of years, it eventually seeps out because it always seeps out, and deceit is dynamite. And the casualties are families, the casualties are children, the casualty is the witness of the body of Christ to a community that looks and says, you see, I don't wanna have anything to do with that. There's no truth in that. You see, you see, you see. And we know this in our workplace. We know that the way deceit derails hopes and dreams and trust and unity. So this is a warning shot, not just to Ananias and Sapphira, but it is a warning shot to the early church to live in the truth, to live in the light. They are following after the way, the truth, and the life. They're walking in the light. Now, what do we take from this? Well, first, we, we run back to the cross, don't we? We've got to be covered of our own deceit. And the only thing that will cover us from the deceit that is more potent is the blood of Jesus Christ. But as followers of Jesus, there's some practical takeaways. We, we can't just leave this story back in, in history and say, wow, that was a severe story here. There's a practical takeaway with just two phrases. One's just to look inside and look inside. Are, are you, do I, do we find ourselves regularly bending the truth? Do we find ourselves exaggerating the truth for our gain at work, for our gain at home? Are we trying to subtly put our best spiritual foot forward to say, hey, look at me and to appear that we're something that we are not? But don't just stop there. Don't just look inward to yourself, but you know what you're gonna find there. Look outside, look to God. 
and hear his word, that when we find a seed that lurks in our heart, there's always a more powerful invitation to bring that deceit to the, hey, to the foot of the cross. And there is always a powerful invitation to confess your sin. And if we confess our sin, he is holy and just and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we, we rely on the grace of God and we rely on the spirit of God to give us the strength to replace those habitual patterns of deceit in our life with something that is far more life-giving for you, for your family, our church, the communities that we live in, and that's the truth. So we admit that we fall short, not just to God, but to people that are close to us who love us. We don't need everyone in our business with this, but we need someone that looks deep inside of us, that holds us and prays for us and cares for us. And I tell you this, when you name this, when you admit that you fall short of the standard of truth, when you walk in deceit, when you admit that to someone else, there's something that is life-giving and it is like a five-gallon bucket of cold water that you just pour on the, the ember of the flame of deceit in your own soul. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And that's true in your life and in my life. That's true in all of our lives. It was the winter of despair, but it was the spring of hope. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith, or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.